0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, team that's going over to Isola. I'm so excited whenever people from Grace get to go over and see what the Lord is doing in Italy. A place that uh, long ago rejected the gospel of grace. It's pretty amazing. So we'll be praying for all of those guys. Uh, Summer asked me this morning. I told her that I was so excited that Michael, my son, and his family were there last Sunday morning. And then I told them they were in Europe for a trip. And she said, are they going to get to go to Brie?" And I said, well, they're there today. So I'm excited about all things going on over there, and at least for this time, I'm glad it's them going and not me on that uh, trip. That that I've been on the plane this week. Our daughter Sarola, uh had surgery this past week, and Allison is still with her. I went out for a few days and came home yesterday. Well, think about thinking about the the wonderful work of evangelism that they do at Isola in central Italy. Let's position and ask you to think about two people that you consider to be very good people. Could be people you know, or could be people you know of. And then think about two people that you would consider, well, if you were honest about it, you would consider them evil, because they truly wish harm for other people. Not just bad people, but evil people. So, here's the question. Did you think about people that you know personally, or did you think about athletes, politicians, entertainers? It just seems natural in our time to depersonalize uh, those whom we want to think of as evil. And it might be difficult if we're thinking about someone being evil, let's, let's, let's don't get to know them. But it's maybe equally difficult to think about somebody that you know well as being a really good person. Because we know all of the mistakes. We know all of the the tendencies that they have to do things that are not that good. And if this is so that we spend our time depersonalizing others, then it should give us pause when we think about evaluating ourselves. The more we think of others as evil, the more likely we are to think of ourselves as good. And then to fall into the worst trap of all in our relationship with God, which is self-righteousness. This morning's text is Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20. So if you're brand new, just a teeny bit of context. We've been talking about this every Sunday. It's a five-week series. And this is week four. The purpose of this book was to prepare God's people in Judah for difficult times that would soon come. Within 10 to 15 years, the Babylonians would come into the land and cart some of the people off to Babylon. Some of the brightest, like Daniel and his three friends, would come just within about 10, 15 years. But then within 25 to 30 years of Habakkuk writing his prophecy, the city of Jerusalem would lie in ruins, including the temple that the people were sure that God would never allow to be destroyed. All of this was coming in the very near future. And Habakkuk was re- recorded a dialogue that he had with the Lord. So, what does this have to do with us? Why should we be studying Habakkuk? Is America equivalent to Israel? Have we been a righteous nation and now things are not going so well, or at least in the ways of God, and so we think, man, we got trouble coming? Uh, well, first of all, let me just say America is not Israel. I know I will make people upset. It's never been a godly, nearly as godly a country as you think. We are. Most of the founders were deists. They weren't Christians. They believed in one God, but they weren't believers in Jesus Christ. George Washington, who wrote all the time about God, only used Jesus' name one time in his writings, and he was a prolific writer. John Adams, you read the book. He was a, a very religious man, talked about God all the time, but rarely about Jesus. So why read it then? Can we expect expect blessings as a nation if we honor the Lord and then devastation if we don't honor the Lord? Why are we reading Habakkuk anyway? Well, it's not we are equivalent to Israel as a nation, but there are patterns in this book that speak to our time. I've been hinting at this uh, for several weeks. But there are three different levels that it seems to me that we have in our interaction with scripture. When we first get saved, we recognize the incredible things that God has done for us. So with this first stage we could call blessing. God has blessed us everywhere we look God is doing something great for us. We're excited to read such verses as Psalm 84:11 which says, "The Lord God is a sun and shield; the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly." The God of the universe has done all of this for me. We take John 3:16 and we say, "God for God so loved Brad that he gave his only begotten son, that if Brad would believe in him. And that's legit. It's legit to do that. We're we're caught up with what God has done for us. It's the bliss of childhood, and we expect always for God to do not only good things, but what we think of as good things for us. The second stage of Bible understanding maybe could be best summed up with the word context context. We learn that context is important, and so Psalm 84 does not mean, 8411 does not mean that uh, if I am serving the Lord and I get sick, that the Lord will heal me, or that He will provide for me in all the ways that I think would be consistent with middle-class American life. In this stage, we, we try to make sense of how the Old Testament and the New Testament are different and how they are alike. What about the big ideas in Scripture, the big themes of Scripture, such as covenant and redemption and identity with Christ? And here's a big one. The righteous one shall live by faith. This stage can actually be discouraged when you find that you can interpret Scripture as freely as you did when you were a new believer, that you say, oh, okay, well, maybe that doesn't apply in the way that I, and I was really counting on it because I got something coming up that I wanted the Lord to do for me. But there are some beautiful things as well. It's comforting to realize that God is sovereign and that His not only are higher than my ways and his thoughts than my, but they're better in the long run. Sometimes it doesn't mean that it will go well with me, but when we see God working in the ways that he does, well, we can praise him anyway. We make discoveries in this stage, such as as how we see that almost every time you see suffering in the New Testament, you see the word glory close by so that there is purpose and meaning in suffering there is purpose in all things in fact even difficult things the st- third stage in our interaction with scripture is to realize that this is not so much <clears throat> it's not so much about god doing all of this for me but the primary discovery after all these years of being in His his Word, are that the patterns and rhythms that God has designed and established to be in life are meant to work for our good. And find these patterns in our personal lives, in the church, in the nation, and in history. We discover that when people live according to biblical... That includes individuals and nations. When we don't live according to biblical principles, well, trouble is sure to follow. And that's both personally and as a nation. And when you look at the way God works in the world and you say, but wait a minute, <clears throat> we're better than those guys. How can you use them to punish, up, punish us? Well, that's where Habakkuk is helpful. God often judges a wicked and self-absorbed nation with a nation that is ascending. Nations rise and fall. Remember the pattern from Romans 9? Gentiles, Jews had to be suppressed so that Gentiles could come into the kingdom. Why? I don't know. It's just a pattern of life and a pattern of history. And as we look at a wicked nation dominating a less wicked nation, we begin to understand that the cycle of judgment will continue, which might tempt us to say, well, a fat lot of good that does me. If I get mowed down along with all the unbelievers because of their unbelief and their sinful ways, but that's being stuck in level one. Talk a lot more about this next week. About a far bigger picture than most of us see and most of us really want to see. The benefit to discerning patterns that are in creation and in our relationship with God. <coughs> is that we come to understand that this is not our story. It's not my story that is blessed with God's presence. Oh God, how wonderful of you to enter my life and do all these great things for me. But rather, this is God's story and I am blessed to be included on the right side. It is not that I am a pawn on a chessboard, but I am a key player in the kingdom of God that will last for eternity. Now look, how God chooses to use me might not be the role that I would have chosen for myself. But I have to trust Him and realize that He sees more than I see. Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20 is where we will find Yahweh telling the prophet that although Babylon appears strong and invincible, the time will come when those who are oppressing Judah will be punished by the Lord. Those who are proud and on top of the world right now will realize how vulnerable they are and how God will always receive glory. There are five woes in the text today. And two times in this text, those woes are broken with a word about God that we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about in verses 14 And 20. They have big picture, big picture, level three implications. So let's begin by reading our text. I'm very sorry. I had, there's something going on. It must be this shirt. That's all I can figure. Because this is a different microphone. You're saying put it, cut the red one off. What's that? Cut the red one off. I bet you that's, okay, hopefully that's our problem. Thank you, Jason. Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20, if you would, please stand for the reading of the text. Pay close attention because we're not going to spend a lot of time in all of these verses, just a couple of them. The first woe. Woe to him, he's talking about the king of Babylon, but by extension, all the Babylonians, and by further extension, all those who oppose the Lord and his people. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors, Babylon, suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. It'll, the roles will reverse. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of men and violence, there's that word again, to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. (coughs) Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts, the Lord of nations, the Lord of armies, that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? It's what goes around comes around. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbor neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. <coughs> And utter shame will come upon your glory. This is going to be very important when we get to the table of the Lord. This cup, it is mentioned hundreds of times in the Old Testament. It's almost always referring to the cup of wrath that the Lord pours out on the nations. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities, and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol. When its maker has shaped it. A metal image. A teacher of lies. Never thought about this before. Sorry to break in here. But I, I need to think, just flesh this out a little bit. What I'm thinking about. The online image that we create. It's like an idol. What good is it? We've shaped it. It's not reality. For its maker trust in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Can this image we've created be truth? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The Word of God for the people of God. Thank you. Thank you. Be seated. This past week, when I flew out to Austin, Texas, to be with Allison and Sarah, I took an Uber in to the house and um, to, to Cyril's place. And my driver was in a Tesla. I said, "Well, oh, this is the first time I think I've ever been in a Tesla. And he's one of those big personalities. He said, welcome to the future, my friend. you know, And it really was like being in the future in this car, you know, the, the screen. It was pretty impressive. But uh, I asked him what else he does, and he told me, and he said, what about you? I said, I'm a pastor. And he's like, oh. I have a question for you then. And I really appreciated, you know, him engaging me this way. But he said, how, how will religion respond to all the scientific discoveries and technological advances? And I'm like, well, now, let's think about that for just a moment. If God exists, What you're really asking is, how will God adjust to the culture? And that just doesn't seem to make sense to me philosophically. I can't respond to that scientifically. I can tell you that there are a lot of really bright scientists in our church who believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And we had a really interesting conversation. And again, I just appreciated... His willingness to engage. I could tell at times, there were several times that he stopped and was reflective. Now, if he knew where I was pastoring, I probably wouldn't say it because I wouldn't want him to see this and think in any way that I'm, 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 I'm dismissing his conversation. It was very important. We'll, we'll come back around to this in the message. Our text tells us that God works in such ways... That all will come to know Him. Whether men and women bend the knee both now and later, or only later, the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. What a great blessing for believers to understand that God has called us to actively participate in making Him known in good times and bad Habakkuk 2:14 For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and you're a part of that This will not only will not fully happen, excuse me, until Jesus kingdom is established after he returns but it's happening now even when it seems as if God is nowhere to be found. God's purposes are always being accomplished. The Hebrew understanding of knowledge implies a personal knowledge, not just an accumulation of facts. One of the ways that God makes himself known is through the principle of reaping and sowing. Again, not karma, but reaping and sowing. It might seem in the short term that we no longer need God because we have anti- antibiotics and chemotherapy and irrigation systems and fertilizer and too many technological advances to count, including AI, for goodness sake. We don't need God. In fact, you would be surprised at how many people have convinced themselves that they are. God's. I remember the first time I read it, I was like, no, no, no. In Time Magazine, many years ago, when they started talking about technological advances and and AI and how it would come to singularity in the future where machines take over a machine and man becomes one. And they spent, Time Magazine had an entire page, if not two pages, Essentially saying we have reached the places the place where we are becoming deity. Now think about that. Again, about how ridiculous something is. You don't become divine. Either you're divine or you're not. But there are a lot of people thinking, we have become gods. Look, we we understand. And even though I hope as a believer you never call an athlete or an entertainer a god, even in jest, it's just not wise to do that. But we hear it all the time. And sometimes (laughs) we have toyed as as a people with the dangerous notion of calling certain politicians gods. Well, we treat them like gods anyway. The believer knows, though, God will receive His glory and His ways will prove to be trustworthy and just. We will not only make such claims when we um, walk by faith and not by sight, but we will come to recognize that Habakkuk 2.20 was written in the calamity of Habakkuk's day. He knew that a holy God would punish sin, and eventually Habakkuk accepted how God would accomplish his purposes. It was in the midst of chaos and mass confusion of clashing armies, which Habakkuk could already see, that he wrote verse 20. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Now, there's a good chance that you've meditated on this verse, and you've always been trying to think, where was that verse again? Remember, it's in the Minor Prophets. You would have to know that before Google. Now you can just figure it out pretty quickly. But you've probably meditated on this verse And a quiet, comfortable spot in your house with a steaming cup of coffee close by. Or out in nature being keenly aware of birds chirping and a gentle breeze blowing. But that's not when this verse was written. It was written with the notion and with the understanding that Jerusalem would lie in ruins. Sometimes it takes catastrophe for people to hear what God is saying. What a different place Habakkuk finds himself than when he gave his initial complaint to the Lord. Lord, why don't you do something about the violence in the land? And the Lord got his attention when he said, oh, I'm doing something. I'm raising up Babylon. Habakkuk... Demanded answers from the Lord at the first. And now the prophet quiets himself even as Yahweh hushes the whole world. So as we make our turn toward the Lord's table, I want us to consider seven truths that the whole world needs to hear in quietness of soul as they sit before the Lord. Although this list could be 777 truths and patterns that we find in Scripture, going to settle for just seven today. First, there is a thin line between those who have been redeemed and those who have not. You will remember when you are quiet before the Lord that Jesus alone is the difference. That's what this table is designed to do. Do you feel superior to those who hold different views about God and reality and culture than you do? Or do you recognize that what we're supposed to get from this book of Habakkuk, especially in view of the New Testament, is not that this is divided into the big bad Babylonians and the sweet innocent people of Judah. First of all, they weren't the sweet innocent people of Judah. That's the first thing. When people say, Why does God do, or why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? The first question is, Who's good? There is none righteous, not one. When we are honest with ourselves, and when this book becomes the mirror that it was designed to be, we recognize that it's not the good and the evil of the world, it's sinners. And sinners who have been saved by grace. Take time this week to be quiet before the Lord and realize how sinful you are. And I say that to myself as well. Apart from Jesus. Second, and by the way, we need to be quiet long enough or often enough to remember This first point, because it sort of sets the tone for everything else. Two, God holds all people responsible for his law, whether they are believers or not. It behooves us then to share both the bad news and the good news to all who will listen. The key is getting them to listen. As comforting as it is to know that we will live for God With God for eternity because of Jesus. Some that we're connected with do not know that Jesus died to save sinners. We need to seek to gain an audience with them as Paul did. Both with the religious and the non-religious alike. Because religious people who don't know Jesus need him just as much as carousers. Third. Here's a big lesson from Habakkuk. How do empires fall in patterns that we see in Scripture? Often they decline gradually and then fall all at once. Put your hope in Christ, not in politics. Now you need to understand, I am not saying don't be interested in politics, don't care about politics, don't do what you can do to make this nation a better place. Absolutely. I think about it every day. I think about it. A lot. But we've got to quit trusting in politics. Wait don't you see Habakkuk's posture next week? It is a posture of trust, and it's a posture of waiting for the shoe to drop. Our nation has been blessed with freedom. So we're tempted to believe that we are the masters of our fate. And the captains of our souls. And one of the things you might have missed in Habakkuk 1, I didn't emphasize it in the sermon. We talked about it in home group. Josh Tate said this and I thought, how did I miss that? Preaching about that. God ordained the Babylonians to punish the people of Judah. It was his doings. What can we do about our land? We are responsible to do everything we can, just like Habakkuk was doing. But we also have to recognize that God has his ways. And also to recognize that we, when we think we can turn it all around, if we just do the right thing politically, it's such thinking that brought this trouble on us in our land to begin with which we'll deal with in the next few points. But again, don't hope in politics. Put your trust in Jesus. Fourth, the destructiveness of oppressors will eventually turn into self-destruction. Trust that while God has not promised to be fair, He will always be just as He must. See, fairness and justice... That's kind of going from the first level to the third level. In The first level of your interaction with Scripture, you think everything's got to be just right. By the time you get to the third level, you realize, man, there's a lot going on that I just don't understand. And it doesn't seem fair, and I don't know why God would allow this. But I know that He's just and that He will always do the right thing. Many historians and sociologists say that the seeds of destruction were embedded in our nation's original documents of freedom. Ultimate individual freedom, or as we desire, require today, supreme individual autonomy, will inevitably lead to self-destruction. It is plain and simple, you can't handle the freedom. Not at that level. You're just not able to stop your impulses. It's why the founders, whether they were believers or not, understood that without self-accountability, freedom will not last. It just can't keep going forever. Because we will begin to eat ourselves alive with freedom. What can we do other than wait for the inevitable? The righteous shall live by faith. Know that God will always be just. More about this next week. Fifth, so moving from nations to individuals, how do people change or come to Christ? Often, not always, but often it happens gradually and then all at once. Be patient with your family and friends and do not attempt to force what God alone can do once he gets their attention. So let me ask you about your family and friends, those who never believed or those who have walked away. Do they know what you believe about the gospel? Yeah, if you're concerned about them, they know what you believe about the gospel. There's a place for sharing the truth again, and there's a place for trusting God to get their attention without you continually urging them to trust the Lord. Sometimes when you try to force your loved one to believe, you end up pushing them toward those who will believe and affirm, excuse me, those who believe what they believe and will affirm their beliefs. So what to do? Be patient and pray that God will give them repentance and faith. Don't speak only words of judgment. Leave that to the Lord. There's plenty of it in His Word, and it's already been said, and they know it in our culture if they grew up in a Christian culture. But avail yourselves of opportunities to help them get back to the light. But know that not every encounter is an opportunity. You think about it a lot. Some of you probably you do it at work. Oh, that's a good... You know, that reminds me of the Lord. And you're constantly... Making connections. You don't always need to make those connections. Above all, love them. You might discover that you will gain opportunities by living a quiet witness, which leads to the sixth point, and a really important one. Pursue and practice intellectual hospitality with unbelievers, not political, and religious debate. Don't be constantly wanting to talk to somebody about the political issues of the day. Although I know many of them are moral, I get that, I understand it. Many do not understand how flawed their belief systems are until they are quiet. Help them be quiet and think about eternal matters. Now, when I say quiet, someone told me, between services. Man, I really needed to hear that. My mind goes a 100 miles an hour. It's constantly racing, and I get that too. So why prayer is such a difficult discipline for me. I'm constantly thinking um, about any number of, of things. But this kind of quiet is not necessarily just sitting alone in silence, although that would be a good discipline for all of us To practice, let me know how it goes, okay? And then I'll think about it, maybe. Here's a question. Do you have enough confidence in God and His ways to engage people on level ground, gently helping them by the power of the Holy Spirit to see the fallacies of their thinking? It's no wonder our world never wants to be quiet. Because then you have to deal with the possibility that God exists and that I'm accountable to Him. I've found that while we hear many attacks on the Gospel and on biblical morality, people who don't know the Lord are often curious to know the basis of our thinking and will happily engage us in with open conversation. But if we try try to force our beliefs on them, they're more likely to be interested in shouting us down and then looking back to their tribe to help them, help affirm them that they know that's just crazy what you're saying and you think it's not true. Well, listen to all of these people. One of the students, college students, was telling us in our home group a few weeks ago that when I asked the question in home group, have you ever had a time where you've, you know, suffered or been embarrassed, tried to be, people tried to embarrass you for your faith? And they said, Oh, yeah. It was a time at our high school, there were about 400 people in the bleachers. We were out at the football field. And someone talked about her life as an LGBTQ plus person. And then it was asked, So everyone who will stand with me, please come and stand. And there were, Like 30 or 40 people left in the stands. And the rest of them were looking at the people, taking names, I'm sure. But the good thing about this, our friend told us, was that you also got to look around and see who was also standing. Look, when I say engage people with intellectual hospitality, it doesn't mean don't speak the truth. You have to speak the truth. But there's a way that you can do it it's not offensive, but the world is looking to isolate you. It's a beautiful thing when we get to step away with someone who that's all they hear, that's all they know, and quietly share the gospel with you, with them. They're intrigued. I've been listening um, to a podcast, Mars Hill Audio. With Ken Meyer, he interviewed a lady named Holly Ordway, and she was talking about another lady who wrote about the Inklings. You know the Inklings, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, um, Owen Barfield, Charles Williams, se- several writers, a bunch of these writers that would get together at uh, in an Oxford pub. Um, it was called The Eagle and Child, but the locals called it Baby and Bird. And I've learned all of this. And they would meet in in a room in the back called the rabbit room. And they would just read their uh, writings to one another. And they were able to help sharpen each other. But there was also a great deal of encouragement in these meetings. Uh, It was very collegial. And they were open to talking about things that maybe made them a little bit uncomfortable. And so that's the point. When the Lord says, let all the earth keep silence before him, the Lord is in his holy temple. Be quiet. That ride from the airport to downtown Austin the other day, it's kind of it was like a holy hush in there. It's not that we'd talk and then there would be three minutes of silence, but you could tell the wheels were turning. need to think. If I'd gotten in the car and said, pretty liberal here in Austin, isn't it? Don't think it would have gone too well. When you're shouting at people, when everything is political in nature, a lot of times it's all people need to be turned off. The more and, and they want to fight, and the more invested they are in the fight, the less likely they are to listen. It's why shouting at them won't work. It's also why we ought to even be careful with one another because we develop this sense about how we Feel about things and if we're not careful, oh, never mind, you're not going to do that. That's okay. Shouting won't work. Be quiet and trust God. You can get to this place by embracing the final point. Sit in silence before the cross and marvel at God's love for you and His plan for the ages. That's what we're doing right now as we come to the table. In just a moment, I will invite the servers and the worship team up. We know more than Habakkuk knew. We understand more than he did. Habakkuk's best hope was that God would leave a remnant, whether he would be part of that remnant or not, who could say? And then eventually God would bless the nation of Israel. We know that Jesus has made a way for all peoples to come to Him. We also know that we can leave justice in His hands. It's not going to go the way we want it to in this world. Not in our lives, not in the nation. But God's in charge. He's sovereign. And justice was realized already at the cross. And one day it's going to fall out. And one day at the end of time, believers will be raised to everlasting life and unbelievers will be raised to everlasting judgment. Our desire is for as many people as we can possibly hope to see come to Christ and trust what He did on the cross His payment for their sins. That they might have life. His death for our life. His suffering for our glory. One of those juxtapositions and combinations all at the same time. So as the elders and deacons, staff come forward to be prepared to serve. Worship team comes. I want to... Give just a few instructions. First of all, I want to say that the bread is gluten free, so if you've got an allergy, that's fine. This meal is for believers. If you are a believer, then we invite you to worship the Lord with us at this table. We'll have a station in front of each section. We'll come forward, ushers will alert you when you should come forward. There'll be a station. Take the uh, elements from the station in front of your section. Come down the interior aisles. Go back up the middle or the outer aisles, the exterior aisles. And then hang on to the elements and we will partake when we are all together. I want to read uh, Matthew 26, the text that we'll be looking at for the communion this morning. Matthew 26, beginning with verse 26. Now, as they were eating... Jesus took the bread and after blessing it broke it and gave it to his disciples and said take eat this is my body. The violence that was done to Jesus' body should have been executed on us. Should have been exacted. Should have Come upon us because of our sin. And he took a cup. What cup was that? The cup of God's judgment. That he talks about over and over in the Old Testament. The cup of wrath. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sins. God's wrath fell upon Jesus. For those of us who acknowledge our sins, repent, and believe, Jesus got in the way of God's wrath. And we're protected by Him. We're told to examine our hearts before we partake. If you have sinned this week, and that would include, um, let's see, 100%. Uh, I think of us in here. If you've sinned this day, uh, 100%. Confess your sins. This is a table of freedom. Not. Don't be scared and say, oh, I can't come. Lord might judge me. I've done it 100 times. And he's forgiven you 100 times if you've asked. If you are arrogant in your sin and you look down on other believers, that's when you need to worry about this. If, that's, if, you, if you struggle with that, confess it. And so let's take just a moment, if you would, confess your sins to the Lord and prepare your hearts. And if you've never believed before, wouldn't this be a wonderful time to confess your faith in Christ as you partake? Father, we confess we are sinners and we confess that we believe that Jesus died in our place. And as we partake, we're reminded that just shall live by faith. A righteous one will live by the righteousness that God has instilled in him, given to him, pronounced upon him. We believe Help our unbelief.